Welcome to the CJC Weekly Bible Study, where CJC stands for Complete Jesus Christ. If your perspective of Jesus is based only on teachings from the New Testament, then your understanding is incomplete. Regarding what we often call the Old Testament, Jesus himself said, These are the very scriptures that testify about me. So won't you join us today in our study where we esteem the newer and the older testaments alike. I'm your host, Jeff Smith, and currently we're working our way verse by verse through the first book of the Bible, Genesis. Genesis chapter 27. We're in the middle of a very dramatic story, right? Passing of the torch, if you will, from Isaac to Jacob, but it's at the expense of Isaac being duped. A little bit of a way of review when we looked at last week. You remember last week, some of the things that we came to see was, uh, number one, we counted at least nine areas of Jacob's wicked behavior. When Jacob went in to trick dad, right? And that wicked behavior that he engaged in, we saw nine different, at least nine different occurrences of, of wickedness on, the, on Jacob's part in going in there. We saw a lie, we saw another lie, we saw covetousness, we saw a lie combined with blasphemy, we saw an intent to deceive and or humiliation, uh, we saw an act in furtherance to deceive, we saw another lie. You remember we talked about you just can't lie just once, there's lie upon lie upon lie in this um, manipulation and then a sin of omission. And we also saw in Isaac, we saw six different occasions where Isaac doubted, where Isaac had concerns. He was like, who are you? Really? Are you? I'm not so sure. And that you'll remember, I want to remind you again, you'll remember from last week, the sixth one was when dad, when Isaac said to son, Jacob, come over here so that I might kiss you. And you remember that part? All right. Come over here so that I might kiss you. And the wording or the verse that uh, was in particular that was being looked at there was verses 26 and 27. So look now at Genesis 27, verses 26 and 27. Somebody mind reading nice and loud verse 26. And you're probably thinking, wait, this is last week's material. Why are we, why are we looking at this? Again, it's just a refresher and also to add a little bit of new information that we didn't quite get last week. Somebody mind reading 26 nice and loud. Then his father Isaac said to him, Come here, my son, and kiss me. Excellent, thank you. And you remember how we talked about the kiss? Back then, this would be a kiss on the cheeks. It would be a form of greeting, and it would be between very close relationships. Okay? Very close relationships, a form of greeting or a form of farewell. And it was sad to see that this was a kiss that ended up or being mingled with deceit. Right? It was betrayal. And we saw that mixed in with this kiss. And it was kind of the turning point because this was the last. This was the sixth of the concerns or the doubts that dad had. It was like the last of the doubts. And then when Jacob came forward, Isaac went to kiss Jacob. And then he smells the clothes of his oldest son. And he's finally decided, okay, this must be Esau. I can even smell it. I can smell my son on these clothes, right? So it was the last concern, the last doubt. And so it makes the betrayal all the more stinging, right? It stings all the more because dad was convinced by this point. One of the interesting things that we see here, though, is that this is actually the first occurrence of the word kiss, this word for kiss, in the Bible. And you've heard it before that when we talk about first occurrences, as we go through the book of Genesis, we meet a lot of these, these terms that we meet for the first time. And a lot of times on a first occurrence, you've heard me say this before, it kind of foreshadows something more significant yet future, and so here we have a first occurrence of kiss. It's a form of greeting. Here it's mixed with betrayal and deceit. 
Oh, wait a minute. Can you think of any other kisses that might have been mixed with betrayal and deceit as a form of greeting between really close relationships? Judas and Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, that night that Judas betrayed Jesus, the night before his crucifixion the next day. Yeah. So it kind of jumps out at you when you realize, ooh, this is a first occurrence. What is it looking forward to? And then you realize, oh, my, that's a big one. So I wanted to, to draw that out. We didn't quite get to it last week. And then now moving on to verse 30, moving on to the new material here. Somebody mind reading verse 30 nice and loud. Now it happened as soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, and Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, that Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. Excellent. Thank you, Mike. When you see this wording here, the Hebrew behind the wording here for came forth, you have Isaac finishing, you have Jacob, he's coming in from the field. The wording is actually the same wording that's used to describe their birth. Their birth when Esau came forth and then followed by Isaac. And now you have Isaac coming forth from dad's tent, followed by Esau coming in from the field. Uh, Some of the commentators make a note that, hey, that seems kind of significant. It kind of seems like a little reversal of their birth order in a sense. Uh, But that's not what jumps out at me. The part that jumps out at me is this intrigue and this timing, right? I mean, this is like a narrow miss. This is like movie stuff, right? Because here, here's Jacob. He's just finishing, you know, brother's out in the field. He could be coming back at any minute. Now, come on, dad, eat it, eat it, because I got to leave. And he's probably got all these things in his mind, like, oh, I hope my brother doesn't get back before I get out of this tent. Because if I'm caught in this tent, it's not going to go well for me. And we'll find out as we move on into the next following weeks, as we look at the material further, we're going to find out Esau becomes murderous. He wants to murder Jacob for what he's doing. All right. So Jacob probably has an idea of what his brother's like. He probably has a clue that it could be very, very bad if my older brother, my older twin brother comes in from the field while I'm still in dad's tent. So here is kind of interesting. This verse, he barely makes it out of the tent. He barely makes it. Right. Have you ever watched one of these videos? They're all over YouTube now. You know, you see these compilation videos where it, like there's all these narrow misses, right? So you've got the one where it's a, a guy on a bike in some foreign country, I can't even tell, and he's sitting on the bike in the middle of an intersection or getting waiting for the light to change, and there's like this horrendous car wreck and like debris and vehicles come flying all around. They narrowly miss it. Right? That's the kind of stuff we're looking at right here. Or another one, I remember seeing another one, and it's this driver and he's got a dash cam video you know recording what's going on and there's this big semi truck coming toward him from the other direction it's icy road and then that semi truck just starts sliding sideways and you're like oh no and somehow the driver miraculously makes it you know and that could have been death and he just barely makes it i mean here we have a situation it could be death and he just barely makes it or i saw another one where it was a speedboat and it's just going along, just flying too fast, and it hits something, and, and it just kind of loses control and ends up on the beach, and it's just this crowded beach of spectators watching, and nobody gets hurt. It just mm-hmm. barely misses people. Mm-hmm. You know, these are narrow misses. This th- th- We're reading about a narrow miss. It's like an original narrow miss here that we're reading about. I remember uh, just a couple years ago, I, I'm almost ashamed to admit this one, but we were camping. It was one of our camping trips, and, you know, I've told you uh, there's always an adventure on our camping trip. So this one, we're at a beach, and it's by the railroad tracks, and we decided, oh, let's go walk on the railroad tracks. And I've got one of my daughters on my shoulders as we're walking along the railroad tracks near our campground, and then something doesn't quite feel right, and I'm not sure what it is, and I turn around, and there is a train flying at us. And it just silently came up so very fast, and I turned, and I'm like, <gasps> and I just, I barely got off. I mean, a half a second later, and it would have been a terrible 
yeah. outcome. Yeah. All right. So, like I said, our camping trips are adventurous. <laughs> Narrowly missing us. We could have died easily in, in the next second if, if there had been even another delay. There was no whistle or anything. So don't, don't walk on the tracks. <laughs> I'll be an advocate for that right now. Sign me up for the advocacy group of don't walk on the tracks with your daughter on your shoulders. All right. So here we have this narrow miss situation. Jacob barely makes it out of the tent before his older brother Esau comes back from his hunting. And I, I imagine Jacob, I imagine him coming out of the tent, maybe seeing Esau, do 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 with his, you know, his kill, whatever type of animal he's got, probably on his shoulder, he's feeling pretty good because he's going to be getting the blessing today, you know. And he's on his way to the little kitchen area where they're gonna, he's going to prepare it into a savory, and he's, and here's Jacob in his brother's clothes, right? Probably go, sneak, 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 you know, and try to get back to brother's tent. Mom, quick, put this in Esau's tent, you know, or something like that. And mm, try to look normal. Try to look normal, you know. <laughs> wipe the sweat on my brow. Wipe, wipe. <laughs> yeah, I imagine it goes something like that. Verse thirty-one. Somebody mind reading verse thirty-one. He also had made savory food and brought it to his father and said to his father, "Let my father arise and eat of his son's game, that your soul may bless me." All right. So we find out from this verse that Jacob succeeded in getting away. Right? Esau was just a little too late. Esau didn't catch Jacob at the tent. And so here's Esau, he's making that tasty food or that delicious food, that savory food. He brings it to his dad and says to his dad, let my father arise and eat of his son's game, that your soul may bless me. So far it sounds like it begins the same way as when Jacob went into the den, right? It sounds pretty much the same. How about the next verse? Somebody mind reading that one. His father Isaac said to him, who are you? He answered, I am your son, your firstborn Esau. Excellent. Thank you, Stephanie. And there we see the wording. It's very much the same as the way it was, but I bet it sounds a little bit different. I imagine that when Jacob went into the tent and dad said, who are you? I bet there was, I bet it sounded maybe a little confused, maybe a little surprised. What? Who? Who are you? Because he's not expecting his son to be back yet. And so there's probably some surprise in his voice. There's probably a little bit of concern. But I'm imagining now, because Jacob's already come and done this whole thing. Esau coming in, Esau's voice saying, hey, dad, I got your food. I'm imagining now, even though it's the same words, who are you? I bet it's a little bit more scared. I bet there's surprise still. I bet there's some concern still. But I bet it sounds fearful. I bet dad's voice has some fear in it. Like something's not right. Okay. Verse 33, somebody mind reading that? Isaac trembled violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? I ate it just before you came and I blessed him. Indeed, he will be blessed. Excellent. Thank you, Mike. So there we have Isaac trembled violently. My version has Isaac trembled exceedingly. The wording that is being used to describe Isaac's bodily reaction, most of the commentators go out of their way to say, this cannot be overemphasized. The wording is so strong. Let me show you another place that you find this wording. Go to Exodus Exodus is the next book of the Bible, Exodus chapter 19, and we're going to be looking at three verses, verses 16, 17, and 18. Here's what it says here. Then it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and the sound of the trumpet was very loud so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. 
those words that you see there that describe what the, what's happening to the people, right? Where it says the people who are in the camp trembled, and where it says regarding the mountain, the whole mountain quaked greatly. This is the appearance of God on Mount Sinai. And there's thunder and there's lightning, there's thick cloud, there's smoke, there's, I mean, there's all kinds of stuff going on. Do you suppose people were afraid? <laughs> Do you suppose people were shaking in their, in their boots? Have you ever heard that phrase, shaking in your boots? If there was ever a shaking in their boots, here's a shaking in your boots passage, all right? Yeah, their knees are probably knocking. I mean, this is God appearing to man. It doesn't get more horrific in a sense than this. It doesn't get more fearful than this. These people are shaking, and even the mountain is shaking. It's the same word for the people as it is for the mountain as it is for Isaac. It's the same word. So Isaac's violent shaking in response to hearing this voice, Hey, Dad, get up and eat. (laughs) What could cause you to shake when you hear those words? Except if you think something is wrong, something is amiss, something really bad has happened, right? So why did Isaac tremble? What are your guesses? What do you guess? Maybe a reason why Isaac might be trembling. Anger. Anger. Maybe he's trembling in anger. Like he's already realized, oh, I know what happened. Yeah, he could be trembling in anger. Anything else? Maybe because uh, he realized that uh, he made a mistake. Oh, could be realizing he made a mistake. Good. Mm-hmm. Any other reasons why he might be trembling like this, violently, shaking? One of the commentaries they gave us five. They give five different reasons. Here's what they say. Number one, he had been deceived by Jacob. Kind of like Mike said. He realized he's been tricked, and he's, he's furious. Number two, he himself had acted in secret, trying to deceive Jacob and his own dear wife, Rebecca. Number three, he had caused severe problems and divisions within his home. Number four, he had schemed against God himself, attempting to bypass God's will. And number five, he had betrayed the trust of the blessing given to him by God and his father, Abraham. We don't know. It could be all of those. It could be one and not the others. It could be some combination of those. He's got plenty of reasons to be in fear. He's got plenty of reasons to be angry. He's got plenty of reasons to realize that he's done something wrong and that God himself is looking down and has arranged what's going on in the way this is playing out. Yeah, there's all kinds of reasons why he could be trembling, but he is trembling exceedingly or violently. It's a very strong reaction. John Hartley says, regarding that last phrase that you see there in verse 33, where it says, and indeed he shall be blessed, where Isaac says those words, John Hartley says, indeed he will be blessed. No ritual existed to undo a blessing. If the recipient of a blessing was other than the one intended, the person still received the blessing. Isaac thus was powerless to reverse this course of events. There was no provision back then to undo it. Your words were considered so strong, so binding, you don't go back and say, I changed my mind. There was no, I'd take you to court and we're going to renegotiate the contract and we're going to you know, null and void everything I said. There wasn't any of that. Your words were understood to be binding. There's a story that's from Joshua chapter 9 where a group of people called the Gibeonites come to Joshua. And Joshua had been leading the children of Israel through the promised land, the land that God has said, go through and take the land. And taking the land requires engaging in battle with people, and God saw to it that they would win these battles. Well, the Gibeonites are like the next hill over. And they do this ruse, this scheme, where they show up and they they make it look like they've been on this horrendously long journey. And Joshua says, who are you guys? And they say, oh, we are we're people, we've heard the greatness of your God, and we've come to like pledge ourselves to, you know, we're looking for an alliance with you. We won't hurt you. You don't hurt us. We're from a long way away. This bread that's all moldy and hard, 
this bread was fresh when we got on our camels or donkeys or whatever they were riding. And this clothing was new when we started. And look, now the clothing is all torn up. And these wineskins were new when we started, and now they're all falling apart. As if to say, they've traveled a long way. And so they make this pact. Joshua, nobody prays in that chapter. Hey, God, are they telling the truth? Joshua's duped into making an alliance with them and such that you won't hurt us, we won't hurt you. Fine, go your way. They find out that's the next town over. That's the town they're going to conquer. They come up over the hill. They go, oh, wait, truce. You said you wouldn't harm us. And Joshua's like, you lied to me. You said you were like from far, far, far away. Well, you know what? You made an alliance with us. Doesn't matter. The words were binding, and Joshua even himself realized it and didn't harm them. In fact, if you go further in the story, pretty soon the Gibeonites, their surrounding neighbors go, they got jealous, and they got mad, and they're like, oh, well, we'll attack the Gibeonites because they made an alliance with these people. These are going to be our enemies. And Joshua took his men to defend the Gibeonites Mm -hmm. because your words meant something back then. His words meant something to them. And just as we're seeing here, Isaac realized his words mean something. They saw it as a way for God to empower the words that were spoken. Victor P. Hamilton says, Upon discovering that he had been tricked, Isaac makes no attempt to rescind his earlier blessing on Jacob. Abrogation is not an option for Isaac, for the essence of an oracle is that it is irrevocable. Verse 34, somebody mind reading verse 34. When he saw heard the words of his father, he cried with an exceedingly great and bitter cry. And said to his father, bless me, me also, O my father. Thank you, Mike. The words that's used here, the Hebrew words that's used to be translated exceedingly great and bitter cry, it's the same word that would be used to describe the cry of help, the hopeless cry of help of a woman being violated out of the woods, sexually violated. It's that cry for help. It's also the same word that's used to describe in Exodus chapter 11, verses 4 through 6. Exodus eleven four through 6 says this, Then Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the female servant who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the animals. Then there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as was not like it before, nor shall be like it again. You imagine that setting. You imagine that scene. The death angel is passing through. It's the middle of the night. And moms are waking up, something's not right in my home, and they go to check their children, and their oldest firstborn is dead. Mm-hmm. And the scream of a mom finding that, and then the neighbor next door is screaming, and then the neighbor next door to that is screaming, and all these screams of terror, of horror, of their finding their firstborn's dead, that's the same word that's used to describe the scream of horror, the cry of Esau, when he finds out that he's been tricked, that dad got tricked by his younger twin brother. That's the same kind of cry that's being let out. But it was too late, right? For Esau, it was too late. Verse 35, somebody might reading that one. But he said, your brother came with deceit and has taken away your blessing. Excellent. Thank you, Mike. We have here, Isaac's figured it out. Isaac now knows what happened. If he figured it out earlier, we probably have some indication by the way he was shaking violently. But here he's voicing that he's figured it out. He's saying to Esau, your younger brother Jacob came in and tricked me. Your younger brother took away your blessing that ultimate blessing that I gave him. It was a blessing that, unlike any blessing I had ever intended to give anybody, it was supposed to be for you, and your brother took it, that kind of thing. By the way, Jacob and this dealings with deceit here that's going on in his family, I mean, that's sad that that's the way that their family behaves, but Jacob is actually going to be on the other end of deceit in the next chapter of his life. When he moves away from here and he goes over to another land, there's going to be in particular a name that you've probably heard of from other studies we've done already, Laban. 
And Laban is going to treat Jacob with deceit, just as Jacob has treated his dad and his brother with deceit. Verse 36, somebody mind reading that? Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has supplanted me these two times. He took away my birthright, and now look, he has taken away my blessing. And he said, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? Doesn't he sound desperate there? Mm-hmm. Thank you, Sherry. Yes, he sounds so desperate there. He's like, Dad, don't you have anything left for me? Isn't there a blessing for me? Right? Well, my version has supplanted. I heard Sherry read supplanted in her version. It's a word that we don't use very often. Supplanted. What is supplanted? In the context that we have it here, to supplant is to take the place of someone else through fraud or deceit. As Jacob took the place of his older brother through fraud or deceit. To receive from dad what was rightly supposed to be given to Esau, at least in dad's eyes. That was the way it was supposed to play out. But Jacob took that by engaging in deceit or fraud there. The way that Esau is talking here where he says, is he not rightly named Jacob? The reason he says that is because the consonants in Jacob's name, and they didn't use vowels back then. In the Hebrew language, it was just consonants. Those consonants that make up the name Jacob are the same consonants that are used to make up the word for supplant or deceit or trick. Verse 37, somebody mind reading that? Then Isaac answered and said to Esau, God has made him your master, and all his brethren I have given to him as servants. With grain and wine I have sustained him. What shall I do now for you, my son? Excellent. Thank you, Mike. Where it says there that I've given all his brethren, we should read into that to mean relatives. As time goes on, Esau's relatives or descendants that would come from Esau would be subject to Jacob's descendants. So when dad says that last question where he says here, what shall I do for you now, my son? He's not taking requests, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. He's not asking Esau, what, you know, what can I, he's not a genie. He's giving it all away. It's a rhetorical question. He's basically saying, I got nothing left. It's as if dad has given away to Jacob the appetizer, the seven course meal, the full dessert, and even given away the waiters. I mean, he's given away everything. All that's left for Esau is the crumbs on the floor. That's all that's left. And so dad's breaking the bad news to him. And I can imagine dad's probably saying it with a little bit of a mellow tone, kind of like, I've made him your master. And everybody that's ever going to come from your line, in general, that group is going to be subject to his group. (laughs) There's no good news here for him. Mm -hmm. Verse 38, somebody might remember verse 38. Esau said to his father, have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Excellent, thank you. And again, you can hear the desperation in his voice. It's like, Dad, just give me some sort of blessing. You've got to have something left for me. Some sort of blessed, but he's too late. It's all been given away. It's too late. John Hartley says regarding this verse, Esau expressed much more concern over the loss of the blessing than he did at the loss of the birthright. Remember that story? He didn't seem to care. It is likely that he had resolved that having sold his birthright, he would not let Jacob get the blessing. Furthermore, since the blessing was pronounced by his father, he had not foreseen any way that Jacob could get the blessing because of his own close relationship to his father. But Jacob had usurped the deepest expression of that relationship. And then Matthew Henry says, When Esau understood that Jacob had got the blessing, he cried with a great and exceedingly bitter cry. The day is coming when those that now make light of the blessings of the covenant and sell their title to spiritual blessings for that which is of no value will in vain ask urgently for them. But I would add to that, but it'll be too late by then. Verse 39, somebody might reading verse 39. His father Isaac answered him, Your dwelling will be away from the earth's richness, away from the dew of heaven above. Thank you, Mike. Do you remember the blessing that was given to Jacob? It had some of that same wording. It had to do with the fatness of the earth from the dew from above. 
But it was in the ultimate blessing that was given to Jacob, it was that those things would be given to him. And here for his brother, what's left? Well, you're going to be away from those things. Some of your versions, you'll even find some versions, don't, don't make that distinction. They don't say that you'll be away from. And the reason for that is because the word that's used to translate the word from is the same word that's also used to translate the word of. And some, some of your versions will say, your dwelling shall be of the fatness of the earth and of the dew of the heavens from above. So what you need to do is you need to read in the context, what is it, is it likely to be of or is it likely to be from? And so most of your translation committees have chosen the word from saying that you're getting the opposite of what your brother got. The blessing that your brother got that I intended to give to you, you would have had all those good things, but I've given them away. So the context would suggest, so what's left? You get to dwell somewhere else. You get to dwell away from those things. Verse 40, somebody mind reading that? By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. And it shall come to pass, when you become restless, that you shall break his yoke from your neck. Excellent. Thank you, Sherry. The preacher's outline and sermon Bible for the Old Testament commentary says this, Isaac, apparently under the leadership of God's spirit, was stirred to make a prophecy concerning Esau and his descendants, who were to become the nation Edom. Esau and his descendants, number one, were to live in a barren, infertile land. Number two, were to live in conflict. Number three, were to live in servitude. But number four, were occasionally to be delivered to throw off the yoke of foreign rule. Where it says there in verse 40 that you shall break his yoke from your neck. We've talked about a yoke before, but just in case somebody is here that hasn't heard those discussions before, what is a yoke? You remember what a yoke is? Sherry's, so Sherry's doing a motion. Two animals? Yeah, there you go. It's typically a big piece of wood, a big block of wood that you would put to bind the neck of one animal to another. And it's usually secured by some sort of frame or, or apparatus that would hold that animal fixed in that position with their head stuck in that one place on that beam. And then the other animal would be tethered in the same way. And so you'd have these two animals tethered together using this yoke. And then you can tie straps and lines and use whips and, and control them and make them pull your cart or make them pull your plow or whatever it is you wanted these animals to do. Sometimes you would even have a yoke for one animal. If you just had one, you would have a, a yoke for that single animal. It was a way of enslaving or making into a servant whatever animal you wanted to with, with the yoke that you had that was appropriate for that size animal. And this is typically used in the Bible of a way to describe somebody that's been enslaved. And it wasn't uncommon for a conquering people to come through. And those that were conquered, maybe you'd take their king. And you would take their king and put that king in a yoke. And maybe even parade them through the streets back to your land that you came from, that you swept in from. And it was a way to express to everybody around, we've made him our servant. The king of that people is now the slave of us. And if the king's a slave, by all means, everybody else is too. All right. So here dad is saying that uh, it's as if you and your descendants will have this yoke and who's being the slave master? Who's being the one who's, you know, cracking the whip? It's going to be your brother's descendants. All right? And we see this historically. This actually did happen. The descendants of Esau ended up moving into a land of Seir, which ended up becoming known as Edom. And in the land of Edom, it was on the other side of the Jordan River. It was not in the promised land. But over there, they ended up giving tribute to the descendants of Jacob until eventually the 8th and 9th century before Christ, they ended up rebelling and ended up breaking that yoke, if you will, uh, during the reign of Jehoram, or Joram, also known as, and they, they broke free of that. So we did see this historically play out. When God says something, you can count on it happening. That played out just exactly the way that the Bible prophesied would happen. You know, interestingly, in Hebrews chapter 11, you have a list of people that the author gives you and says, these are examples of faith. 
Among that list, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 20, Isaac is given as an example of faith. Somebody mind reading that? I think I see Stephanie's there. Stephanie, would you mind reading that one? Yes, verse 20. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. Excellent. What you have here, and this cracks me up. Because what is it saying? It's saying that Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau. Yeah, we saw that in this chapter. And the author of Hebrews is saying he did that by faith. And I'm thinking, how do you do that? How do you accomplish that by faith when you were tricked? I'm thinking if if I'm Isaac and I'm giving this blessing and I'm thinking it's my son Esau and I pour it on, this is the ultimate blessing, and I'm giving it to Esau and I'm duped, how am I doing that by faith? Because I believed it was Esau, and it's not turning out the way I planned, <laughs> right? If I'm dad, and I'm thinking this is all for Esau, and then I find out I'm tricked, then it clearly didn't happen the way I was planning it. And if I had done it by faith, now my faith is all warped because it didn't happen the way I had faith that it would. So somewhere else has to be the faith. It's not Isaac's faith when he gave the blessing that the author of Hebrews is trying to highlight. The place that the author of Hebrews is trying to highlight with Isaac's faith is in the words that Isaac says to Esau after he realizes he's been duped. Those words, and flip back if you will with me, those words that say, verse 33, how does verse 33 end? And indeed he shall be blessed. And indeed he shall be blessed. That's where the faith comes in. When he realizes that this has not turned out the way he had planned, and he realizes he's messing with God's plan. And God says, uh-uh, you're not messing up my plan. And he trembles violently, realizing he did something wrong, just as Gabriella was saying. He knows that he's been stepping into a territory that God says, don't be messing around here. And that's when he makes that comment. That's when he says that phrase, indeed he will be blessed. Hmm. He realizes and makes that statement in faith that he's been messing around in God's territory. And God intends to see it happen just exactly the way he had prophesied when Rebecca was still pregnant. When Rebecca was still pregnant, oh, what's going on inside of me? These old babies are kicking around. And God says, there's two people in there, two boys in there, and they're going to become two great nations, two great peoples, and the older is going to serve the younger. And it was from that moment that we look for, is this going to happen or not? God says, this is what's going to happen. And here, Isaac realizes, I've been going against God, and God's still going to see it happen the way he said it was. You don't mess with God. (laughs) And that's when he's able to say, ooh, and surely he will be blessed. So Isaac's mentioned as a pillar of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. But interestingly, Esau is also in Hebrews. He's in a different chapter. He's in the next chapter. He's in chapter 12. Chapter 12, verses 16 and 17. We've looked at verse 16 before. He is not painted in a pretty picture over there. But in verse 17 is the one I want to emphasize today. It says this, For you know that afterward, when he, this is speaking of Esau, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, which is what we're talking about today, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. He was a little too late. He decided to get serious about his life too late. It was too late. The Reverend F.B. Meyer says this, There are similar events in all lives when we take some irrevocable step under the sway of evil passion, and it affects the whole future. There is no place for repentance, no opportunity of altering the decisive effect of the act. We may obtain some lower or inferior blessing as Esau did, acquiring something of the fatness of the earth and the dew of heaven, living by our sword, and finally, after long years, shaking the yoke from our neck. 
but we can never be what we might have been. We can never undo that moment of sowing to the flesh. What is he saying there? He's basically saying that we all find ourselves in places where we make decisions, and sometimes we don't weigh the costs. Sometimes we throw caution to the wind. Sometimes we know full well what we're doing is not God's will. And then when those consequences start coming back upon us, then we cry out with tears and we go, oh, I wish I could undo it. I wish I could go back. I wish I could make it all right again. And we can't because it's too late. We've made a choice that sets us on a trajectory that puts us in a place where we don't want to be. It's too late for Esau. He sold his birthright. Here he's accusing his brother of having stole his birthright. But you'll remember back, no, he gave it away for a bowl of soup. His brother didn't steal it. He gave it away. But here he's like, oh, he stole it, as if he's the victim. But really the way he's been living is lackadaisical. He wasn't taking the things of God seriously. He wasn't taking, if you will, his spiritual life seriously. He was just living for his own pleasures. And now it's too late to go back and make changes that would affect the outcome of this story. Sometimes we discover it's too late. We can't go back and change those choices that we've made when we're not taking God seriously, when we're not living the life we know we should be living for God. Another example from Scripture of being too late, from Matthew 25, 1 through 13. I'm just going to paraphrase this. This is a passage. It's a parable. Jesus spoke this parable. It's often known as the parable of the five wise and the five foolish virgins. And in this parable, you have a wedding procession, and it's expected to pass by where these ten virgins are, right? And the, it just means young girls, all right? That, that's all you need to read into it, <laughs> all right? So there's ten young girls, and they want to be a part of the party. They want to go with the wedding procession and celebrate this marriage, right? So they know it's going to pass by, but when is it going to come? I don't know. So they're waiting, and it they turns into night, and it's dark, and now they hear, off in the distance, here comes the wedding procession, and they get their lamps ready. Back then, that was their way of lighting. They had oil lamps, oftentimes this big, and they would fill it with oil, and they'd light the wick, and now you got light. But some were like, oh, man, my lamp's going out. I didn't bring enough oil. Five of them. Foolish. Didn't bring enough oil. Five of them wise, brought enough. And the foolish ones, hey, 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 let me have some of your oil. And they're like, no, we're not going to have enough for ourselves if we give you some of ours. You need to go buy some more. So those five foolish ones leave, and they go to buy more. And while they're gone, the wedding procession comes and picks up the five wise who are ready. And they go off to celebrate this new marriage. They go off to celebrate in the wedding festivities that are accompanying with that. And the five foolish ones finally get their oil and they go to the place where they know the wedding procession has gone to. <laughs> Knocking on the door. They want in. It's too late. They're told no. They're refused entrance. They were looking forward to being a part of that. And they missed out. They thought for sure they were going to celebrate with everybody else. And they're on the outside. And they can't get in. It's too late. What does Jesus say this is like? He says this is like the second coming of God. This is like the second coming where there are people looking forward to it, expecting to be able to participate in it, only to find out. Some are going to find out they're on the outside. Some are going to find out it's too late. Some of you are going to find out they're not ready. They weren't prepared. They made choices that resulted in them missing out on this great festivity that's still yet future. The Son of Man coming again to take us to be with him the marriage supper of the lamb and all the festivities that go with that and some are not going to make it because they're not ready that's what jesus says the parable is about we're living in a time right now where it's not yet too late we're living in a time where there can be choices that can be made to make sure that we're ready that when jesus comes back again that we don't miss out that when jesus comes back again we get to join him 
that when he comes back again, we get to look forward to and actually participate in the celebration of the marriage supper of the Lamb. But don't be late. Be ready when he comes. Don't be late. It's not yet too late. Let's go ahead and close the door. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord. We thank you for these challenges that you give us. We thank you, Lord, for the information that we're able to pull out of this and we're able to hear from your spirit, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for the challenge we also have in other places in the Bible. Like Peter, he says to make your call and election sure, and we pray that you would help us to make our call and election sure. Esau was too late, and he tried to repent, and he tried to undo the things that he had done that put him in a spot, Lord, where he missed out. He gave away something so wonderful for something so base. Help us, Lord, not to participate in something like that, where we would give away our faith, give away our spiritual life, the health of our spiritual life for something stupid here on this earth that just meet our pleasures for the moment. Help us, Lord, not to be so arrogant as Esau thought he knew for sure he was going to get the blessing. Lord, that arrogance cost him in the end. He missed out and it was too late. Help us, Lord, not to have that kind of arrogance, but to come before you humbly. And your word says that when we approach you humbly, you'll lift us up. We thank you, Lord for the relationship that we have in you. And we pray that you would help us to continue to grow in this relationship so that we'll be able to participate and join the procession on the way to the marriage supper of the Lamb. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, you guys have a wonderful...